Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taika Alhambra. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're going into week two of The Imposters by Arthur Mackin, and uh, I certainly hope that everybody is having a uh, a good new year and that everything is proceeding just as well as can be imagined. I am doing all right. I am starting to make plans for uh, the recording of National Poetry Month, the poems for which have mostly already been picked out. And I'm also starting to lay the groundwork for Pride Month, which we're doing again this year. Um, this year, there will not be a fourth wall February, though. So I guess that's something. Uh, anyway, um, thank you all so much for listening. And uh, let's go ahead and get into the story. The Encounter of the Pavement. Mr. Dyson, walking leisurely along Oxford Street and staring with bland inquiry at whatever caught his attention, enjoyed in all its rare flavors the sensation that he was really very hard at work. His observation of mankind, the traffic, and the shop windows tickled his faculties with an exquisite bouquet. He looked serious, as one looks on whom charges of weight and moment are laid, and he was attentive in his glances to right and left, for fear lest he should miss some circumstance of more acute significance. He had narrowly escaped being run over at a crossing by a charging van, for he hated to hurry his steps, and indeed the afternoon was warm, and he had just halted by a place of popular refreshment when the astounding gestures of a well-dressed individual on the opposite pavement held him enchanted and gasping like a fish. A treble line of hansoms, carriages, vans, cabs, and omnibuses was tearing east and west, and not the most daring adventurer of the crossings would have cared to try his fortune, but the person who had attracted Dyson's attention seemed to rage on the very edge of the pavement, now and then darting forward at the hazard of instant death, and at each repulse absolutely dancing with excitement to the rich amusement of the passers-by. At last, a gap that would have tried the courage of a street boy appeared between the serried lines of vehicles, and the man rushed across in a frenzy, and escaping by a hair's breadth, pounced upon Dyson as a tiger pounces on her prey. "'I saw you looking about you,' he said, sputtering out his words in his intense eagerness. "'Would you mind telling me this? Was the man who came out of the aerated bread shop and jumped into the hansom three minutes ago a youngish-looking man with dark whiskers and spectacles?' "'Can't you speak, man? For heaven's sake, can't you speak? Answer me, it's a matter of life and death.' The words bubbled and boiled out of the man's mouth in the fury of his emotion. His face went from red to white, and the beads of sweat stood out on his forehead, and he stamped his feet as he spoke, and tore with his hand at his coat as if something swelled and choked him, stopping the passage of his breath. "'My dear sir,' said Dyson, "'I always like to be accurate.' Your observation was perfectly correct. As you say, a youngish man, a man, I should say, of somewhat timid bearing, ran rapidly out of the shop here and bounced into a hansom that must have been waiting for him as it went eastwards at once. Your friend also wore spectacles, as you say. Perhaps you would like me to call a hansom for you to follow the gentleman? No, thank you. It would be a waste of time. The man gulped down something which appeared to rise in his throat, and Dyson was alarmed to see him shaking with hysterical laughter, and he clung hard to a lamppost and swayed and staggered like a ship in a heavy gale. "'How shall I face the doctor?' he murmured to himself. "'It is too hard to fail at the last moment.' Then he seemed to recollect himself, and stood straight again and looked quietly at Dyson. "'I owe you an apology for my violence,' he said at last. "'Many men would not be so patient as you have been.' 
Would you mind adding to your kindness by walking with me a little way? I feel a little sick. I think it's the sun. Dyson nodded assent and devoted himself to a quiet scrutiny of this strange personage as they moved on together. The man was dressed in quiet taste, and the most scrupulous observer could find nothing amiss with the fashion nor make of his clothes, yet from his hat to his boots everything seemed inappropriate. His silk hat, Dyson thought, should have been a high bowler of odious pattern worn with a baggy morning coat, and an instinct told him that the fellow did not commonly carry a clean pocket handkerchief. The face was not of the most agreeable pattern, and was in no way improved by a pair of bulbous chin-whiskers of a ginger hue into which moustaches of light color merged imperceptibly. Yet in spite of these signals hung out by nature, Dyson felt that the individual beside him was something more than compact of vulgarity. He was struggling with himself, holding his feelings in check, but now and again passion would mount black to his face, and it was evidently by a supreme effort that he kept himself from raging like a madman. Dyson found something curious and a little terrible in the spectacle of an occult emotion thus striving for the mastery and threatening to break out at every instant with violence, and they had gone some distance before the person whom he had met by so odd a hazard was able to speak quietly. "'You are really very good,' he said. "'I apologize again. My rudeness was really most unjustifiable. I feel my conduct demands an explanation, and I shall be happy to give it to you.' Do you happen to know of any place near here where one could sit down? I should really be very glad. My dear sir, said Dyson solemnly, the only café in London is close by. Pray, do not consider yourself as bound to offer me any explanation, but at the same time, I should be most happy to listen to you. Let us turn down here. They walked down a sober street and turned into what seemed a narrow passage past an iron-barred gate thrown back. The passage was paved with flagstones and decorated with handsome shrubs in pots on either side, and the shadow of the high walls made a coolness which was very agreeable after the hot breath of the sunny street. Presently the passage opened out into a tiny square, a charming place, a morsel of France transplanted into the heart of London. High walls rose on either side, covered with glossy creepers, Flower beds beneath were gay with nasturtiums, geraniums, and marigolds, and odorous with mignonette, and in the center of the square, a fountain hidden by greenery sent a cool shower continually splashing into the basin beneath, and the very noise made this retreat delightful. Chairs and tables were disposed at convenient intervals, and at the other end of the court broad doors had been thrown back. Beyond was a long, dark room, and the turmoil of traffic had become a distant murmur. Within the room, one or two men were sitting at the tables, writing and sipping, but the courtyard was empty. "'You see, we shall be quiet,' said Dyson. "'Pray, sit down here, Mr. Uh... "'Wilkins. My name is Henry Wilkins. "'Sit here, Mr. Wilkins. I think you will find that a comfortable seat. "'I suppose you have not been here before.' This is the quiet time. The place will be like a hive at six o'clock, and the chairs and tables will overflow into that little alley there. A waiter came in response to the bell, and after Dyson had politely inquired after the health of Monsieur Annibal, the proprietor, he ordered a bottle of the wine of Champigny. The wine of Champigny, he observed to Mr. Wilkinson, who was evidently a good deal composed by the influence of the place, is a Turanian wine of great merit. 
Ah, here it is. Let me fill your glass. How do you find it? Indeed, said Mr. Wilkins. I should have pronounced it a fine burgundy. The bouquet is very exquisite. I am fortunate in lighting upon such a good Samaritan as yourself. I wonder you did not think me mad. But if you knew the terrors that assailed me, I am sure you would no longer be surprised at conduct which was certainly most unjustifiable. He sipped his wine and leant back in his chair, relishing the drip and trickle of the fountain and the cool greenness that hedged in this little port of refuge. Yes, he said at last, that is indeed an admirable wine. Thank you. You will allow me to offer you another bottle. The waiter was summoned and descended through a trap door in the floor of the dark apartment and brought up the wine. Mr. Wilkins lit a cigarette and Dyson pulled out his pipe. Now, said Mr. Wilkins, I promise to give you an explanation of my strange behavior. It is rather a long story, but I see, sir, that you are no mere cold observer of the ebb and flow of life. You take, I think, a warm and an intelligent interest in the chances of your fellow creatures, and I believe you will find what I have to tell not devoid of interest. Mr. Dyson signified his assent to these propositions, and though he thought Mr. Wilkins' diction a little pompous, prepared to interest himself in his tale. The other, who had so raged with passion half an hour before, was now perfectly cool, and when he had smoked out his cigarette, he began in an even voice to relate the novel of the Dark Valley. I am the son of a poor but learned clergyman in the west of England, but I am forgetting these details are not of special interest. I will briefly state then that my father, who was, as I have said, a learned man, had never learnt the specious arts by which the great are flattered, and would never condescend to the despicable pursuit of self-advertisement. Though his fondness for ancient ceremonies and quaint customs, combined with a kindness of heart that was unequalled in a primitive and fervent piety, endeared him to his moorland parishioners, such were not the steps by which clergy then rose in the church, and at sixty my father was still incumbent of the little benefice he had accepted in his thirtieth year. The income of the living was barely sufficient to support life in the decencies which are expected of the Anglican parson, and when my father died a few years ago, I, his only child, found myself thrown upon the world with a slender capital of less than a hundred pounds and all the problem of existence before me. I felt that there was nothing for me to do in the country, and as usually happens in such cases, London drew me like a magnet. One day in August, in the early morning, while the dew still glittered on the turf and on the high green banks of the lane, a neighbor drove me to the railway station, and I bade goodbye to the land of the broad moors and unearthly battlements of the wild tours. It was six o'clock as we neared London. The faint, sickly fume of the brickfields about Acton came in puffs through the open window, and a mist was rising from the ground. Presently, the brief view of successive streets, prim and uniform, struck me with a sense of monotony. The hot air seemed to grow hotter, and when we had rolled beneath the dismal and squalid houses whose dirty and neglected backyards border the line near Paddington, I felt as if I should be stifled in the fainting breath of London. I got a hansom and drove off, and every street increased my gloom. Gray houses with blinds drawn down, whole thoroughfares almost desolate, and the foot passengers who seemed to stagger wearily along rather than walk all made me feel a sinking at heart. I put up for the night at a small hotel in a street leading from the Strand where my father had stayed on his few brief visits to town, 
and when I went out after dinner, the real gaiety and bustle of the Strand and Fleet Street could cheer me but little, for in all this great city there was no single human being whom I could claim even as an acquaintance. I will not weary you with the history of the next year, for the adventures of a man who sinks are too trite to be worth recalling. My money did not last me long. I found that I must be neatly dressed, or no one to whom I applied would so much as listen to me, and I must live in a street of decent reputation if I wish to be treated with common civility. I applied for various posts, for which, as I now see, I was completely devoid of qualification. I tried to become a clerk without having the smallest notion of business habits, and I found to my cost that a general knowledge of literature and an execrable style of penmanship are far from being looked upon with favor in commercial circles. I had read one of the most charming of the works of a famous novelist of the present day, and I frequented the Fleet Street taverns in the hope of making literary friends, and so getting the introductions which I understood were indispensable in the career of letters. I was disappointed. I once or twice ventured to address gentlemen who were sitting in adjoining boxes, and I was answered politely indeed, but in a manner that told me my advances were unusual. Pound by pound, my small resources melted. I could no longer think of appearances. I migrated to a shy quarter, and my meals became mere observances. I went out at one and returned to my room at two, but nothing but a milk cake had occurred in the interval. In short, I became acquainted with misfortune, and as I sat amidst slush and ice on a seat in Hyde Park, munching a piece of bread, I realized the bitterness of poverty and the feelings of a gentleman reduced to something far below the condition of a vagrant. In spite of all discouragement, I did not desist in my efforts to earn a living. I consulted advertisement columns. I kept my eyes open for a chance. I looked in at the windows of stationers' shops, but all in vain. One evening, I was sitting in a free library, and I saw an advertisement in one of the papers. It was something like this. Wanted by a gentleman, a person of literary taste and abilities as secretary and amanuensis, must not object to travel. Of course, I knew that such an advertisement would have answers by the hundred, and I thought my own chances of securing the post extremely small. However, I applied at the address given, and wrote to Mr. Smith, who was staying at a large hotel at the West End. I must confess that my heart gave a jump when I received a note a couple of days later asking me to call at the Cosmopole at my earliest convenience. I do not know, sir, what your experience of life may have been, and so I cannot tell whether you have known such moments. A slight sickness, my heart beating rather more rapidly than usual, a choking in the throat and a difficulty of utterance, such were my sensations as I walked to the Cosmopole. I had to mention the name twice before the hall porter could understand me, and as I went upstairs, my hands were wet. I was a good deal struck by Mr. Smith's appearance. He looked younger than I did, and there was something mild and hesitating about his expression. He was reading when I came in, and he looked up when I gave my name. My, my dear sir, he said, I am really delighted to see you. I have read very carefully the letter you were good enough to send me. Am I to understand that this document is in your own handwriting? He showed me the letter I had written, and I told him I was not so fortunate as to be able to keep a secretary myself. Then, sir, he went on, the post I advertised is at your service. You have no objection to travel, I presume? As you may imagine, I closed pretty eagerly with the offer he made, and 
Thus I entered the service of Mr. Smith. For the first few weeks I had no special duties. I had received a quarter's salary and a handsome allowance was made in lieu of board and lodging. One morning, however, when I called at the hotel, according to instructions, my master informed me that I must hold myself in readiness for a sea voyage and to spare unnecessary detail in the course of a fortnight we had landed at New York. Mr. Smith told me that he was engaged on a work of a special nature in the compilation of which some peculiar researches had to be made. In short, I was given to understand that we were to travel to the far west. After about a week had been spent in New York, we took our seat in the cars and began a journey tedious beyond all conception. Day after day and night after night the great train rolled on, threading its way through cities the very names of which were strange to me, passing at slow speed over perilous viaducts, skirting mountain ranges and pine forests and plunging into dense tracts of wood, where mile after mile and hour after hour the same monotonous growth of brushwood met the eye, and all along the continual clatter and rattle of the wheels upon the ill-laid lines made it difficult to hear the voices of our fellow passengers. We were a heterogeneous and ever-changing company. Often I woke up in the dead of night with a sudden grinding jar of the brakes, and looking out, found that we had stopped in the shabby street of some frame-built town, lighted chiefly by the flaring windows of the saloon. A few rough-looking fellows would often come out to stare at the cars, and sometimes passengers got down, and sometimes there was a party of two or three waiting on the wooden sidewalk to get on board. Many of the passengers were English, humble households torn up from the moorings of a thousand years and bound for some problematical paradise in the Alkali Desert or the Rockies. I heard the men talking to one another of the great profits to be made on the virgin soil of America, and two or three, who were mechanics, expatiated on the wonderful wages given to skilled labor on the railways and in the factories of the states. This talk usually fell dead after a few minutes, and I could see a sickness and dismay in the faces of these men as they looked at the ugly brush or at the desolate expanse of the prairie, dotted here and there with frame houses, devoid of garden or flowers or trees, standing all alone in what might have been a great gray sea frozen into stillness. Day after day, the waving skyline and the desolation of a land without form or color or variety appalled the hearts of such of us as were Englishmen, and once in the night as I lay awake, I heard a woman weeping and sobbing and asking what she had done to come to such a place. Her husband tried to comfort her in the broad speech of Gloucestershire, telling her the ground was so rich that one had only to plow it up and it would grow sunflowers of itself, but she cried for her mother and their old cottage and the beehives like a little child. The sadness of it all overwhelmed me, and I had no heart to think of other matters. The question of what Mr. Smith could have to do in such a country, and of what manner of literary research could be carried on in the wilderness, hardly troubled me. Now and again my situation struck me as peculiar. I had been engaged as a literary assistant at a handsome salary, and yet my master was still almost a stranger to me. Sometimes he would come to where I was sitting in the cars and made a few banal remarks about the country, but for the most part of the journey he sat by himself, not speaking to anyone, and so far as I could judge, deep in his thoughts. It was, I think, on the fifth day from New York when I received the intimation that we should shortly leave the cars. I had been watching some distant mountains which rose wild and savage before us, 
and I was wondering if there were human beings so unhappy as to speak of home in connection with those piles of lumbered rock, when Mr. Smith touched me lightly on the shoulder. "'You'll be glad to be done with the cause, I have no doubt, Mr. Wilkins,' he said. "'You are looking at the mountains, I think? Well, I hope we shall be there tonight. The train stops at Reading, and I dare say we shall manage to find our way.' A few hours later, the brakeman brought the tram to a standstill at the Reading depot, and we got out. I noticed that the town, though of course built almost entirely of frame houses, was larger and busier than any we had passed for the last two days. The depot was crowded, and as the bell and whistle sounded, I saw that a number of persons were preparing to leave the cars, while an even greater number were waiting to get on board. Besides the passengers, there was a pretty dense crowd of people, some of whom had come to meet or to see off their friends and relatives, while others were mere loafers. Several of our English fellow passengers got down at Reading, but the confusion was so great that they were lost to my sight almost immediately. Mr. Smith beckoned to me to follow him, and we were soon in the thick of the mass, and the continual ringing of bells, the hubbub of voices, the shrieking of whistles, and the hiss of escaping steam confused my senses, and I wondered dimly as I struggled after my employer where we were going and how we should be able to find our way through an unknown country. The Three Impostors by Arthur Mackin will continue next week. Um, I want to say thank you to Alder Riley, Mark Vincent, Eric Braun, Chris Kelly, and Andrew Buchanan. Thank you all so much for your support on Patreon. It really means a lot to me, um, and uh, it's uh, it's just it's just mind blowing to me that people you know support my silly little show. Um, the money, uh, the money, as I as I say, uh, is just goes straight back into the show. Uh, right now, it um, I have some money earmarked to pay the readers that I'm going to have uh, in Pride Month. If you want to support me on Patreon, you can find me at patreon.com slash the weird tales podcast. Otherwise, please check out the reignition theory, uh, which features me as Mason Canerich, one of the three main characters uh, in the show. Um, the audiobook that I just finished recording uh, was approved by the uh, publishing house and will sh- hopefully be, av- be, uh, bleh, be available within a month. Uh, and I will make sure to mention that to you there. It's a story that I really enjoyed reading and I really enjoyed performing it. And I think that you will enjoy it as well. Um, I think that's about it. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you all so much. And I hope you ha- thank you all so much. And I will see you next week. Da 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 da. Here's the bloops. I saw you. I saw you looking about you, he said, sputtering out the words in his intense eagerness. Would you mind telling me this? Was the man who came out of the aerated bread shop and jumped into the hansom three minutes ago? Nope. Hold on. I'm doing the totally wrong voice. I need to know who this guy is. Wilkins. Uh, Wilkins is the ginger whiskered man. All right. You see, we shall be quiet, said Dyson. Pray sit down here, Miss. That's not Dyson's voice. Her husband tried to comfort her in the broad speech of Gloucestershire, telling her the man. Telling her. I'm just glad I got through Gloucestershire without. in one go. Except it's actually like Gloucestershire, isn't it? Hold on. Gloucestershire. 
Yeah, it's Gloucestershire. All right, fine. Her husband tried to comfort her in the broad speech of Gloucestershire, telling her the ground was so rich. I just recently wrapped up my playthrough of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, and they pronounced it Gloucestershire. So it was just, it's just, that's just what's on my head. That's what, that's what's in my head and on my tongue. That brings this week's episode to a close. I want to say thank you to, I'm going to re- just restart this sentence again. So uh, thank you all so much for listening. I really, there, see, started going off on it again. Not not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. 